Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. Before we get into our lesson, I want to present you with something I'm doing that's very exciting, at least to me. Back in January of 2023, I began a discipleship class at our home church that went for about 31 weeks. This was far more than doing Bible study with some guys, but was pouring into them what it means to walk with Jesus as men of God. Originally, my goal was to raise up some preachers and teachers from our home church in Kentucky. At first, four men showed interest who felt that they were called to some degree of the pulpit ministry. Then some other men wanted to be part of the group, just to be discipled, and I opened it up to them as well. Week by week, I was writing out the lessons and correcting the required homework. My whole approach to raising up preachers and teachers is that since the message comes out of the man, then the men must be developed into men of God before they can be anointed preachers and teachers. This approach is also good for just discipling men and women. I am planning on starting another group in mid-January, the Lord willing, and I am looking for a dozen or so people who are interested in being discipled and are willing to commit themselves to this discipleship. Since I am still developing the class, my estimation is that it will take 30 to 35 weeks to finish. The first one I did lasted for 30 weeks for those who were just doing the class for discipleship and another week for those who were in the preaching track. There will be one weekly meeting in person for those who live near the church in Dry Ridge, Kentucky, and via teams for those who don't. There will be a couple times that I will be out of town, and so we'll have to do the meeting via teams that way as well. There will be homework every week that's rather demanding depending on your study skills. This discipleship class deeply affected those who went through it, and it's my hope and prayer that many more will go through this in the future. If you are interested, then please email me your information so we can talk and see if this is a right fit for you. I am looking for people that are serious about being discipled and will commit to the weekly meeting and homework without complaint or excuses for not being faithful to the commitment. I especially am looking for those who feel a call to the ministry of one sort or another. Though the first class was only for men, this next class I want to open up for men and women. My email address is on my personal page on my website, but I will give it to you now. It's glenn at ihpministry.com. That's G-L-E-N-N at I-H-P-M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y dot com. I will in the near future have a simple application that will need to be filled out to help determine if you are the best candidates for this discipleship class. I don't charge anything for the class or ask for money. But I do demand faithfulness to Jesus, your local pastor, and to the obligations of this discipleship class. My heart is to raise up radicals who God can use to turn the world in which they live upside down. Now, let's get into our study from the book of Acts. We close our last lesson with Peter in the throes of preaching a fiery sermon. Like I said last week, I love that kind of preaching, and that's the kind of preaching we desperately need today in this country. Peter's sermon goes to the end of chapter 3, which we finished studying in our last lesson. Today we will begin digging into chapter 4, which reveals the response of the people to this soul-shaking message. Now let's jump into chapter 4. What we are going to see in this chapter is the first recorded bout of persecution the followers of Jesus experienced after the day of Pentecost. 
we will see four different responses to Peter's sermon. The first is the persecution Peter and John experienced when they were arrested and then interrogated by the Sanhedrin council. The second is that a large number of people that heard Peter's sermon became followers of Jesus. The third response is implied that there were those who rejected Peter's message but didn't become their persecutors. The fourth response was from believers who were only strengthened and invigorated by the persecution. The first two verses show how the persecution began. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There are three types of religious leaders that came to hear Peter's preaching, not because they were interested in becoming disciples of Christ, but because they were enemies of the Lord. The first were priests, and these were probably the chief priests. The chief priests consisted of the high priest and his deputy, and then 24 other priests, each of which were the head of their sacerdotal family. The sacerdotal or priestly families were divided into 24 courses or divisions by King David so that the priestly burdens of the temple were equally shared by the descendants of Aaron. Probably all 26 chief priests didn't listen to Peter's preaching, but enough did to influence the Sanhedrin council. The next group consisted of the captain of the temple guards. Some claim these were Roman guards, but that's not the case. First off, Roman guards wouldn't be allowed in the temple or its courts, which is where Peter was preaching. It was unlawful for pagan Gentiles to enter the temple and to do so invoke the death penalty. If Roman soldiers entered the temple, there would have been a riot. The temple guard was overseen by some priests that were called the captains of the guard, and this became a very prominent position. For a captain of the temple guard to show up reveals their intention to arrest Peter and John. The final group of antagonists were the Sadducees, who were the wealthy liberal group who held the most political power among the Sanhedrin. They didn't believe in life after death, so they strongly rejected the teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, and this would have made them very hostile against Peter and John. How many antagonists were in this group we aren't told. My guess is that there were enough to ward off any protests from the people and to show how the religious leadership felt about Peter's sermon, which wasn't good. They must have been listening long enough to obtain enough information that they thought was reasonable to have the two apostles rested. We are told that these religious leaders were greatly disturbed over what the apostles were teaching, and it's only right that they should since they were the ones guilty of having Jesus crucified. Peter clearly laid out in his sermon the tremendous guilt of the people and especially of the religious leaders who had Jesus murdered by the Romans. At least some of them were involved in the sham trial of Jesus and his crucifixion, and this is why they were so agitated over what Peter was preaching. The Sadducees reject the resurrection from the dead, and Peter's sermon was exposing the heretical theology of the Sadducees. This only stirred their antagonism against Peter and John all the more. In verse 3, we are told what came next. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. This wasn't a legal system that proclaimed a person was innocent until proven guilty. America is quickly abandoning this form of civil and judicial governance and is quickly becoming an oppressive nation. Those who seized Peter and John didn't need an arrest warrant. All they needed was to have the guards on their side, and they could quickly do this before the people put up a fuss. 
They didn't convene the Sanhedrin that afternoon because it wasn't a convenient time for them to meet, except when they wanted to murder their Messiah. Then they could meet at any hour. We aren't told where Peter and John were held, whether it was in a jail of some sort in the temple, but we know that they were under the temple guard's oversight. It seems to me that the most convenient place for the guards to keep them would be in some type of cell that was in the temple precincts itself. It didn't take long before the prophecies Jesus spoke about their being persecuted came to pass, such as in John chapter 15, verse 20, where Jesus said, Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Then in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 and 35, Jesus prophesied to his persecutors, Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. That's a serious rebuke. The response of Peter and John to their persecutors shows us that they learned from Jesus both through his teaching and example. In spite of Peter and John's arrest, or maybe in conjunction with it, we are told in verse 4, But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. There are two ways that this verse can be understood, and translators will render the verse according to what they believe it to be saying. It could be that 5,000 people were saved that day from the group that heard Peter preach. We aren't told the number of people that heard him preach, but it could have easily been much larger than 5,000. Those who object to this number being saved on that day don't offer any persuasive arguments. So the other option is that the number of believers had grown to around 5,000 men, and this number wouldn't include women. If this were the case, then about 2,000 people were saved that day, since 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. What Luke records lacks the needful information to make an accurate decision on what he wrote. If the number of disciples had increased to 5,000, was that in Jerusalem or in all of Israel? Would that number include all those who had come from around the Roman Empire for the day of Pentecost and were saved on that day, but had since returned to their homeland? Whatever the exact number of believers were, we know that the church was growing at a fast rate, and this would have been a huge challenge to disciple them all. Whether 5,000 men were saved on that day or only 2,000, the effect of that sermon was powerful, and this is the divine power we need to see in America today. In verses 5 and 6 we read, The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men from the high priest's family. The religious elite met to look into what Peter and John were doing and teaching. News about the phenomenal miracle of the cripples' healing spread quickly and brought the infant church and the apostles into notoriety, and the religious elite feared this greatly. Not only did the Sanhedrin council meet that consisted of 70 elders, but other important religious leaders were there as well. The point that the family of the high priest was present shows how great a threat they perceived Peter and John to be and the message that they were preaching. Both Caiaphas, who was son-in-law to Annas, had been appointed by the Roman governor at various times to be high priest. Other prominent members of the family of Annas attended this meeting of the Sanhedrin. I'm not going to bore you with trying to explain who those people were because it won't enhance the account we are studying. 
It's enough to say that the people at this meeting were called together to intimidate Peter and John, and for the religious elite to know how dangerous these men actually were. After the Sanhedrin convened, we are told in verse 7, They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Nothing new here. The religious Jews did the same thing to Jesus multiple times. The council members obviously didn't have the discernment or proper biblical understanding to comprehend that such a miracle could only be done through God. They knew the scriptures from an intellectual standpoint that was defined by their doctrinal bias. They didn't have a relational knowledge of God that's founded upon the scriptures and a personal revelation of who God is and what he does. They had a vague understanding about authority and the name that's invoked to operate in such power. Peter boldly answered them, but they didn't like his answer. To speak in the name of someone is to speak through the authority that person possesses. They knew Peter and John didn't have such power because that's not natural to mere mortals, so they knew it had to be supernatural. There are only two supernatural sources, and the first is the infinite power of God, and the second is the finite power of devils. To ask by what authority or power this miracle was performed isn't a wrong question to ask unless the motive is wrong to begin with. The religious bias of the Sanhedrin caused them to believe the power to perform this miracle came from hell rather than heaven. They were hoping that Peter and John would somehow make a slip in their defense that would allow the Sanhedrin to come down upon them with a heavy hand that would silence them into submission. In verses 8 through 10, we are told, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter and John were in some sort of jail, cell, or guarded place for the night. The natural condition they would have been in when the time came for them to stand before their accusers would have been one filled with anger, fear, and anxiety. Instead, Peter was full of the Holy Spirit, which implies a mental and emotional condition of faith, not unbelief, fear, or anger. The fact that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that he was baptized in the Holy Spirit a second time, since there is only one spirit baptism. It simply means that through the night and on into the morning, Peter and John were operating in faith by trusting that the Lord was going to use this for his glory and the growth of the infant church. Because people are baptized in the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that they are full of the Spirit on a constant basis. The gift must be applied to the life by faith, or the value of the gift will never be known. Though we aren't told how Peter and John acted while being under arrest, we can easily surmise that they were in prayer and worship, for they were ready for the illegal interrogation that the Sanhedrin was going to perform. By being full of the Spirit, we know that the Spirit of truth was going to use him to proclaim the truth for the glory of God. Peter appears to be the spokesman for the two apostles, and was anointed by the Spirit to boldly speak the truth. This happens through people that are in right relationship with Jesus by being much in prayer. Peter, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, addressed the elders of Israel in a respectful manner. But his showing them respect 
didn't in the least mean that he was going to cower in a corner, because he didn't. The council asked Peter and John by what authority they performed this miracle, which reveals the primary reason why they arrested them, which was overperforming a miracle. But Peter's preaching only added fuel to the fire. Rather than to angrily attack the council, Peter showed that the healing of the lame man was an act of kindness, which then put his persecutors on the defensive. Then, without flinching, Peter proclaimed that the man was healed through the name or authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There was no way they could misunderstand who Peter was referring to. Then he exposed their guilt by declaring, Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Those were the very men that had Jesus crucified, and it was the family of the high priest that was the force behind our Lord's death. It's obvious that these religious men hadn't changed since they had Jesus murdered, and it was the same religious devilish spirit that was driving them to persecute Peter and John. The only way these men could be saved was for them to accept responsibility for the evil they committed in having Jesus crucified. Their self-righteous religion had them bound up as fully as any demoniac with a legion of demons. Whether they would acknowledge their guilt or not, this would determine their eternal destiny. It certainly seems as if they had no intention of accepting responsibility for the horrendous evil they had perpetrated. Christ's vindication is seen in how God raised him from the dead, the God they claimed to serve but didn't. The contrast between the evil the religious leaders committed in having Jesus murdered and his vindication by the Father by raising him from the dead exposes their guilt all the more. It proves that they were at war with God, that they were his enemies, and this is a fact that they needed to see if there was any hope for their receiving forgiveness for their sins. I like how Peter boldly declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures that the religious elite claimed to believe and claimed to defend. There was more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus was Messiah, but hearts bent on unbelief will reject any evidence, no matter how convincing it may be. Peter then declared that it was Jesus who healed the man who was standing before them at that very moment. They couldn't deny the reality of this miracle. The former cripple was well known, probably to many of them on the council as well. How they got the man who was healed to be present at the interrogation, we aren't told. Was he locked up with Peter and John or merely commanded to be present at this bogus hearing? We aren't told, and there's no need to speculate on the matter. Peter continues to preach his defense before the Sanhedrin in verses 11 and 12. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter and John weren't formally educated in one of the rabbinical schools of the day. They were taught by Jesus, who also didn't have a formal education. Yet we see that Peter has a knowledge of the Scripture about the Messiah that reveals he had a good education in spite of it not being a formal one. We know this knowledge came from over three years of being under our Lord's tutelage and the Holy Spirit bringing these truths to their remembrance. Peter is quoting Psalms 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He is showing how the religious leaders were like builders or expert architects who rejected the capstone or cornerstone, who is Jesus. 
The Greek states that Jesus is the head of the corner, which could either be a cornerstone from which the whole building is built from, or the capstone, which is the finishing stone of a building. When you look at the various translations, they are split on the matter, some using cornerstone while others use capstone. It seems to me that the significance of a cornerstone is more in keeping with having a building properly constructed according to the architect's design, rather than a capstone that would be the finishing touch of a building. The point is that the religious leaders rejected the very one they should have owned as Lord, God, and Savior. In spite of the Sanhedrin rejecting Jesus, he has been proved to be the beginning and the end of salvation, both the cornerstone and the capstone. Peter makes this point clear by declaring that salvation is found in no one else. This is an absolute statement. There is no other way of salvation, no other Savior, and there is no such thing as a co-Savior. There's no other religion that can get people into heaven, no other belief system that can save them from sin, death, and hell. One interesting point about this is that we see the unchangeable nature of God revealed in this spiritual reality. All roads don't lead to heaven because there's only one way, and the Lord knows who He is and what He's about. Only a very confused God would give multiple ways to get to heaven, having them all in blatant contradiction to each other. The idea that there are no absolutes certainly doesn't come from a God of absolutes, who gives mankind's absolutes to live by. Like I said a moment ago, Peter is quoting a prophecy from Psalms 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The very next verse declares, The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Whether the religious elite of Peter's day acknowledged this or not, the fact remains that the Lord raised Jesus from the dead and made him the cornerstone. This is true of our day as well. What is Jesus the cornerstone of? The true faith and the true church, of the kingdom of God and even all of creation. And either people bow to him in loving devotion or they will bow before him as defeated, conquered enemies. Mankind's response to Messiah Jesus is either one of loving surrender or of hatred and eternal separation from him. People must make a choice, and Peter is forcing his listeners to make one. The Sanhedrin thought they were trying Peter and John, or at least interrogating them to such a degree that they would be cowering in fear before them. Instead, the members of the Sanhedrin were the ones on trial. They were the ones who had to answer the question of what they will do with Jesus. The first time they dealt with Jesus, he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, so he was silent before them as a sacrificial lamb. Jesus is now the resurrected, ascended Lord, to whom each of those men must answer why they had him crucified and why they refused to repent to him. It's a non-negotiable truth about salvation that Jesus is the only Savior, and what we do with Him will determine our eternal destination. We are told in verse 13, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. As is the case so often when we read a sermon from the Gospels or in Acts, we are only getting an overview of it and it may be the case here as well. From the elder's response, it feels like Peter must have said more, since they were impressed with his knowledge of Scripture and the history of Israel. 
but it was also the holy boldness that came from Peter and John that set them back and caused them to think again about what was going on. They finally realized that Peter and John had been with Jesus, probably because they were talking and acting like him. This is both right and reasonable. The student should be like the master. That's what Jesus taught. This happens when a student reveres his master, and since there had never been a rabbi like Jesus who was without fault, it was more than reasonable that he was their role model. The religious leaders were shocked at how Peter and John spoke and handled themselves in this challenging situation. Through this, they saw the mark of Christ's character upon them. To say that these apostles were acting like Jesus is the absolute greatest compliment that could be given to any believer. It's evidence that grace was powerfully working in their lives. The members of the Sanhedrin and those who were invited to this interrogation were forced to conclude according to verses 14 and 15. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. They had no substance by which to accuse Peter and John of any crime, religious or civil. So in fear of looking bad before the people who believed the cripple was miraculously healed, they decided to talk privately. Verses 16 and 17 give us the summary of their discussion. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an astounding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They saw the handwriting on the wall, and the message was against them, and they were afraid. Things were getting out of hand, but there was nothing they could do to forcefully silence this revival that was spreading or those who were the spokesmen of it. These religious leaders were left without a plan because all of Jerusalem was in an uproar over this miracle, and even they acknowledged its legitimacy. All they could do was to warn Peter and John not to speak any more in the name of Jesus which more than likely they knew was not going to happen. It's interesting to see that at this juncture, they wouldn't speak the name of Jesus, but only referred to him as this name. Then in verses 18 through 20, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After commanding them to not speak in the name of Jesus, Peter and John gave a fantastic reply. What they had seen and heard, they were going to proclaim no matter what the religious rulers commanded them to do or what they did to them personally. The point, judge for yourselves, was an appeal for these men to put themselves in the sandals of Peter and John, and after seeing and hearing what they did, how could anyone be silent? It was a reasonable argument, but not one that would hold any sway over these religiously blind leaders. We see here a fantastic example of how we are to boldly yet humbly refuse to be silent by the powers that be. This will cost some their lives, others their freedom, many their homes and possessions, but they will all be rich in Christ, and when they stand before the Savior they loved and lived for, they will hear those wonderful words, Well done. Coming to an end of Peter and John's persecution before the Sanhedrin, we read in verses 21 and 22, 
After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. The corruption of these men is seen in how they were bent on punishing Peter and John, but couldn't find a way to do it, for the people of Jerusalem proclaimed the healing was a miracle. Given that the man was over 40 years old and was deformed from birth, the miracle was remarkable, and this silenced the deceived leaders of Israel. At this point, all they could do was to threaten the apostles, which is also a despicable thing to do, given the overwhelming evidence that this was a miracle from God. Yet these religious leaders were depraved, deceived, and being manipulated by devils, and they were blind to the facts. May God perform such awesome, Jesus-glorifying, salvation-producing miracles in our time and through our lives. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come wash in the river Come drink your fill Let healing walk